Oh, man, it's so good to be back with you. And I just want to say that, uh, man, really missed you last week. Uh, so grateful to John for filling in for me so ably. And uh, we had my two daughters. We moved them to one to Kentucky, one to Alabama. And that was a big road trip last week. So thank you so much for letting me be gone. Uh, but I, did, I missed you all. I really did. And thank you so much. And uh, we're very, very mindful that this is a big week. We're going to go back to school this week. Lots of things that are going on. And uh, so I really want to try to kind of give a word that's going to be helpful and encouraging, I think, to the parents who are here today. So if you're a parent of a child, a student, or maybe even an adult kid, uh, today I think it's going to be really helpful to you. So we're going to Romans chapter 7 today. Romans chapter 7. And we all have something in common here today. Uh, We all want to change. We all want to grow. We all want to do better. We want to better ourselves. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, that's, that's not true. There's nothing wrong with me. Then something's wrong with you, okay? You really need to go get checked. We all have issues, <clears throat> whether it comes to food, finances, marriage, parenting, uh, health, spiritual disciplines, whatever it is. We know the right thing to do, but we just can't seem to do it with real consistency. I can go on and on and on. In fact, all of us could with this sentence structure right here. I know that I should, but instead I blank. And we could all fill in the blanks with all kinds of things. And if we're being honest here today, uh, you're just like me in this respect. And your best intentions go in one direction, but then your behavior goes in another. Like, why? Why does that happen? You know, we make a New Year's resolution. We'll put a list on the refrigerator, something like that. These are the things that I'm going to do. These are the things that I'm going to improve in. And it seems like if you write it down, it just gets harder than ever before. And we ask ourselves, why can't I do better? Why can't I be better? Why can't I get better? And so we're going to talk about this for the next two or three weeks, the war within. That's our title today, the war within. It's such a powerful passage. It's so powerful theologically, but it's also really powerful uh, philosophically. And you're going to learn a lot about humanity and humankind in the next two or three weeks, but also very, very powerful uh, psychologically. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is going to give you and me a very personal look into his own life. It's a very personal passage. He opens a window into his very own soul and gives us a view into his inner battles, his war within as a Christian. Now, one of the dangers of a passage like this is we can kind of oversimplify the subject. The subject is the battle with sin. And there are more than 30 different words in your Old and New Testament for sin. Things like transgression, wickedness, iniquity, evil, injustice, disobedience, and debt. We're not talk- what we're talking about here in, uh, is a very complex set of issues. You know, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament telling us how to govern everything about their lives. I Googled that this week, and it's real. There are, if you're a, a strict rabbinic Jew, they have a list of 613 Old Testament laws related to everything. Food, money, sex, ungod, uh, parenting, possessions, time, work, worship, all those things. And it's not as simple as, well, this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. When we start talking about the battle with sin, we're talking about a cosmic conflict of epic proportions and these enormous powers in our world that are battling against us and in us and around us. For example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it says, says this, look at this. Satan was opposed to Israel 
and he incited David to make a census of the people of Israel. In other words, David, I want, David had this idea. I'm going to measure my military might and see just how strong my nation is. And Israel was supposed to be unique in all the world in that they depended only on God to defend them. And yet Satan incited David to do a census, and it says God was displeased, and David had to beg for forgiveness because God's judgment came on the nation. But notice that phrase there, Satan incited, he moved, he prodded, he pushed, he shoved David to do that. And so, so many people don't really have a a really healthy respect for the awesome and awful power of sin. It's things like, you know, I'll just do this once, or I can quit anytime. It's not that big of a deal. Lots of other people do it. There's no harm in it, et cetera, et cetera. Grossly underestimating the power of sin to decimate and devastate people's lives. And we lose battles that we should have never begun. Now, in the gospel, Jesus tells us he's able to free us from sin, from the penalty and the power of sin. He's come to release us so we become the people that God has designed us to be. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul said, God is at work in you, and he's strengthening and energizing, and he's creating in you a longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose. Why? So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, and uncontaminated children of God. Notice what he says about the world. And this world is perverse. It's wicked. And we all know that's true if you watch the news for 10 minutes. All right? And so we can miss this freedom, this power, this opportunity that is our birthright as Christians if we attempt to handle this battle, this war, the way 99% of the people in the world do, and that is just sheer force of will. Man, I am so determined. This year is going to be different. Man, I am dedicated. I've got a notebook. I've got stuff written down. I'm doing it this time, okay? Uh, discipline. You know, I'm going to get up early every day, or I'm going to do this. I'm going to change everything about my life, et cetera, et cetera. And we do this to ourselves, and you're going to see here in Romans 7, when we act that way and think that way, we're actually setting ourselves up for colossal failure. It's amazing how our minds and our souls work in unison. Now, if I were to ask each of you this question, what makes a good Christian? Or how do you know that you know that someone is a Christian? And we would all come up with a different set of rules and expectations that define what a good Christian is and a good Christian does. Some of you would have a lot of do's. You know, well, you know, a good Christian does evangelism. They do a daily quiet time. They, they, they're in church. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much, all right? Uh, they're giving. They're serving in ministry. Uh, they're really polite. They're really, really nice people, you know? A lot of you have a list of don'ts as well. Well, you know, you know, the movie ratings, they don't go to certain kinds of movies. Uh, they don't watch this kind of TV or that much TV. And they're related to alcohol, clothing, language, music, politics, now, I'm not at all suggesting that we don't have expectations or aspirations, but God is calling you and I to live for so much more than just a mechanical list of do's and don'ts. Look up on the screen, Galatians chapter 5. Live your whole life in the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of your lower nature, your flesh, 
some of your Bibles might say. The Spirit produces in human life fruits such as these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, fidelity, tolerance, and self-control, and no law exists against any of those. That's the J.B. Phillips translation. Here's what the devil loves to do. What the devil loves to do, he loves to get Christians to make a list of do's and don'ts. It's called legalism. I'm going to make a list of laws that I'm going to follow to the letter, and I'm going to expect everybody else to follow to the letter. And this legalism is devastating in its destructiveness because it crushes confidence in some. Not everybody can do the list, but it produces pride in others because some people can. There again, by the force of their will, do the list. And it wrecks relationships for all. Love, all, uh, law always extinguishes love. Always. You need to know that in your families. And so the end result of legalism is powerlessness and weakness. And Paul tells us why. Look at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, do not or thou shalt not covet. But sin, look at verse 8. This is so important. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. I have to tell you, that is an incredible, incredible passage of scripture. And it breaks my heart that in academia and our universities, et cetera, when we start talking about psychology, anthropology, et cetera, that this doesn't really get addressed. This is an incredible passage. Number one, Paul says that law exposes where we fall short. That's what it's supposed to do. Law exposes where we fall short. Now, I was driving the other morning on my morning trek to Pakistan, and a police officer pulled up behind me. He hit the flashers. So I pulled over. He walks up to my car window, and I was wondering, man, what did I do wrong? I think I'm driving the speed limit. And I said, good morning, officer. Was I speeding? He said, oh, no, Mr. Sharp, you're a fantastic driver. You're one of the best drivers in Borger, Texas. We've been watching you. We've noticed that you've been obeying speed limits for over a year. And if you'll report to the police station, we have a $100 Amazon gift card waiting there for you. I said, well, thank you very much. That's, I always knew that. I've been telling my wife that for years. I'm a fantastic driver. It's nice to know you're aware of how carefully I drive. So I'll go down to the Borger Police Department. I talk to this nice lady behind the desk, and she pulls out this logbook, and she shows me their records. Hundreds of times they caught me on radar going under the speed limit on our city streets. And so she thanked me for being such a safe driver and gave me a $100 Amazon gift card. That didn't really happen. (laughs) None of you believed it for a minute. Why not? Why not? We all understand the nature of the law. The law. Law does not reward you for keeping it, maybe to a degree, but law definitely punishes you for breaking it. And that's what law, so law does not remove sin. Law does not remedy sin. 
Law does not redeem us from sin. The only purpose of law is to reveal it. That's it. That's all. There's no power in law to do anything other than expose your sin. That's what Paul is saying in verse 7 and 8. Now, there's a question that theologians have hotly debated for centuries regarding this passage. Is Paul talking about himself before his conversion to Christ or after his conversion to Christ? The answer is yes. Yes, he is. Once we come to Christ, the war within doesn't stop raging. Oftentimes, it becomes hotter than ever before. So the apostle Paul, his name was Saul. He was raised in a very godly Jewish home. He was saturated in his childhood with the law of God. He was very well acquainted with right and wrong. He was taught the law from birth. And what he's saying here is that I can go down the list. Thou shalt put no other gods before God. Check. Thou shalt not lie. Check. Thou shalt not steal. Check. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Check. Thou shalt not covet. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I've done that. Exodus 20, 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Desire his wife, his slave, his slave girl, his ox, his donkey, or anything of all the things that be his. Put it like this in American today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his job, his car, his truck, or anything else that he has, even a four-wheeler sitting in the garage. What is covetousness? It's wanting more of what God has already given you. It's a constant lust for more. More possessions. More pleasure. More power. More prestige. I think if you're being fair, you could call covetousness petty jealousy, really. Envy, discontentment. And no matter what you call it, it's not a good look. It's a very destructive attitude of mind and of heart. It's not fitting for God's children. Why not? Because it's an expression of unhappiness with what God has given you in terms of your status and your stuff. I need more stuff. I need more status. God hasn't given me enough of those things. And I just tell you that, man, that's a struggle for me too. I do. I understand. And Paul did not know that he was falling short of God's glory until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And he realized that he was in a war with sin and he was losing. He was falling short of God's glory. See, the law of God is meant to reveal to you and me the glory of God, the grandeur of God. Number two, he tells us that law isn't going to energize our sinful flesh. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but with kids, what someone else has is always better than what they have. You know, if someone else has it, whatever that thing is, it's better than my thing, and there are no exceptions. I have two little, I have two boys, they're they're adults now, but when they were little, they were about 19 months apart. They were pretty big rivals sometimes. And I could give my oldest son, Ben, like at Christmas, let's say he got a radio-controlled monster truck, and it's awesome, okay? And I give Brady a Hot Wheel, all right? If Brady liked the Hot Wheel and he enjoyed the Hot Wheel, Ben had to have it. Hunter knows what I'm talking about. He knows Ben pretty well, okay? And within five minutes, Ben was taking it from him and making him cry. And I would sit there and say, Ben, you've got a radio-controlled monster truck. 
Brady has a Hot Wheel. Play with that. Leave Brady alone. And it just seemed like the more I would try to reason with him and use logic, the less it would work. Five minutes later, Ben would find a way to sneak the Hot Wheel from Brady. He had to have it. And the more I told him, you don't need the Hot Wheel, the more he would want it. Look at verse 8. He says, since seize the opportunity that was afforded by the commandment and it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. You can just see Paul as a teenager. I won't covet, I won't covet, I won't covet. And what did he start doing? All he could think about was coveting other people's stuff, you know? It's just like when we see the sign, do not walk on the grass, what do we do? We do that, all right? And notice here what happens. He, he personifies sin as an adversary, a living entity with the characteristics of personhood. You're going to see this throughout Romans 7 and on into Romans chapter 8. So sin is not some metaphysical cosmic force. We are engaged in a conflict, a war with a living personal enemy. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said it this way. In the past, he says, you used to live the way the world lives, following the, desi- following the ruler of the evil powers that are above the earth, and that same spirit is now working in those who refuse to obey God. Now, look at verse 8 again. He says, sin seized the opportunity. That is a word from the world of the military. When an army captures a position in enemy territory, and then that, that position that they capture becomes a base of operations, so to speak, for them to go out and attack the rest. And what Paul is saying here is that sin uses the law, you know, the Old Testament commandments, as a base of operation for which to launch its attack upon us. Almost inexplicably, our rebellious nature finds that forbidden thing to be so desirous. We want it for ourselves. When the speed limit is 75, every cell in my body wants to drive 80. You know, like, why is that? Why do people wreck their families with adultery and pornography, alcohol, violence, and anger and bitterness? Why do men and women wreck their careers and reputations with things like fraud and embezzlement and lying and deception? You see, when we're confronted with the law, we know what's right. It stirs something in us, something very, very primal. And seeing the law, especially seeing it in writing, it awakens within us a desire to assert our own will. I am the captain of my ship. I am the captain of my soul. And I will be God in my own life. In Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us the serpent was more skilled in deceit than any creature God had made. And the serpent, or Satan, said to the woman, can it really be that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, God said, you shall not eat or touch it, otherwise you'll die. And the serpent said, you certainly will not die. There was one commandment, one, in Eden. And Satan manipulated it and used it against Adam and Eve. He uses the law to energize sin, to awaken within us, to stir within our hearts this rebellion and self-will in the human heart. And Paul says, then that began to produce in me every kind of covetous desire. Look at that word desire for a moment. In the original language, 
you see this word, and it means to lust after. And when you see that word up on the screen, notice the word, you might see the word thermal, or maybe like thermometer kind of built into it. It's something that creates heat. It makes your heart beat a little bit faster. All right, your temperature starts to rise a little bit. And all of us have a thing, or more than one thing, that makes our heart beat a little bit faster because we believe this will be the thing that's going to bring me prestige. This will be the thing that will bring me power, pleasure, or possessions. And Paul said, I decided not to covet, but the law actually energized in my flesh a desire to covet. And he says here, once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Look at that little phrase there. Once I was alive. Adam and Eve were spiritually alive. Their soul was vibrant and healthy before they broke God's law. And what Paul is trying to tell you and me here, this is so, so important. In his childhood, he was in a state of relative innocence. Now, we're all born into sin, but there's an innocence that comes and we're spiritually alive. I used to get asked this question a lot when I was a youth pastor. What about the children who die before they ask Jesus to be their Savior? Are they going to go to hell? You know? And I'd always turn to this passage and explain this to the kids. Have you ever noticed that you don't have to convince any child to believe in God? It just, it just happens. It just comes naturally. In their innocence and their purity, children are alive to God. They freely talk to God. They freely talk about God. They freely pray. And it takes years of cynicism and skepticism from adults to train children to not believe in God anymore. The universities around us are great at this. But I want you to see the passage that John shared a little while ago. People brought children to Jesus so he could touch them, and his followers told him to stop. He was upset. He said, let the little children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to people who are like these children. And so, yeah, if a child dies in that age of innocence, their soul is safe. But here's a great question. What happens to us that we come to a place in our lives that we need salvation? That our soul goes from life to death? That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He also talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Look up on the screen. He says, in the past, you were spiritually dead, you Ephesians, because of your sins and the things that you did against God. You live the way the world lives, following the ruler of the evil powers that are above the earth. See that again? Giving in to the cravings of our sinful flesh and doing all the things that our bodies and minds wanted. See, as children, we do things that are wrong. And we do things we know the Bible tells us are wrong, but you're not like opposing God. You're not you know, shaking a fist at God. But then something changes. See, Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, when the commandment came, when the commandment came, he means something like this, when the commandment came home to me, and I, you know, I, I got to be you know, maybe a preteen or a teenager, and suddenly the commandment came home, and I realized what was at stake, and then the heat turned on. We've all had this experience, haven't we? Many of you... Uh, raised in great homes. Scripture was read in your home all the time. You were in church every Sunday. You were in Sunday school. You were in VBS. 
and you walk the line because you don't want to disappoint your parents. You don't want to get in trouble at school. You don't want to soil your reputation. You don't want to break your parents' heart. You're a good kid, a really good kid. But then there was that thing as a preteen or a teenager that just turned up the heat inside of you. And that desire was awakened. and You couldn't get it out of your mind. And the more determined you were to not think about it, the more you thought about it. And the more you thought about it, the closer you got to it. The closer you got to it, the more alluring it became. And the more alluring it became, the easier it was to justify doing it. And then you did it. You knew it was wrong. You knew God had outlawed it. But we've all made that faithful decision. We all have our own Eden, our own tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all had that time in our lives. We said yes to the serpent and we willfully opposed God and we declared ourselves the Lord of our own lives and we went against God. And notice what Paul says here. He says, sin sprang to life. Sprang to life. The picture here is that sin is kind of quietly slumbering in your heart as a child. It's latent. It's dormant. And then something awakens it and it coils up like a snake, okay? Or it, or it, it coils up like a beast of prey, poised to strike. And when the commandment comes, the predator, boom, leaps to life. Genesis chapter four, when Cain was so upset with his brother Abel, having his sacrifice accepted, the Lord came and met with Cain and he said to him, why are you so angry? Why do you look annoyed? If you do what is acceptable and pleasing to me, will you not be accepted? And if you ignore my instruction, sin crouches at your door. Its desires overpower you, but you must master it. Mm. So sin is crouching at the door, waiting to leap to life, and we know what happens next. He killed his brother. So there's an issue I want to talk about real quickly as we, as we close today. We had all the kids up here a little while ago, and man, it's so wonderful. And I just want to say to all of our teachers, all of our educators, all of our school personnel, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for the investment that you make in our kids every day. Thank you so much. It is so much work. It's harder than it's ever been before. A lot of you know, Melanie and I started off in education, and what you're doing now is so much more difficult than what we were doing you know, 25, 30 years ago. Thank you so much all that you do. Thank you so much. But there is a deception tactic that sin has. Sin's deception tactic. You know, about a few years ago, actually many years ago, uh, I had a good friend named Lindy. And Lindy was an illusionist. He was a magician. He went all over Texas doing shows and things like that. And we had a, we had a, a like a little meeting. Remember Subway used to be in the bowling alley? I'm really dating myself here, but used to have Subway over there where CVS Pharmacy is now. We're sort of sitting in Subway, and a bunch of us youth pastors are having lunch. One of my interns is there. His name is Marcel. And I was telling everybody about how good a magician Lindy is, and Marcel starts really dogging Lindy. He's like, man, you're no good. You know, show me a trick. Show me a trick. And Lindy's like, no, man, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. He's like, no, it's because you can't do anything. And, and so Lindy's like, okay, I'll tell you. He said, do you have $5 in your wallet? He says, yeah. He said, so, hey, take that $5 and close it up in your hand. 
I'm going to make this $5 disappear. And, Lin, and Marcel's like, okay, okay. So Lindy takes Marcel's hands, and he, he, he takes both his hands, he makes, a, makes two fists, and he starts moving his hands around. And Lindy's like moving his hands over his hands. And then Lindy tries real quick to snatch something out of Marcel's right hand. And Marcel pulls his hand back. And he goes, ha, ah, see, you're not as good as you thought, are you? And Lindy's like, yeah, you know, I, got, I think I got a cold or something. I'm not feeling very good. You're right. I, yeah, you got me. You got me. So then we hung out about 15 more minutes and we're leaving Subway. We go out in the parking lot and Lindy goes, hey, Marcel, what time is it? And he goes, and he looks and he goes, where's my watch? And Lindy said, would this help? <laughs> it was awesome. None of us saw it. It was incredible. Somehow he got his watch off his wrist into his pocket while he's playing over with his right hand. What he deceived him. He completely deceived us what he did. Now we've all seen this happen. We can all think of friends. We can all think of family members. We can maybe some of us think of ourselves. Good kids, raised in good homes. And then here comes some new freedom. Or here comes some new friends. Here comes some new acquaintances, some new experiences. And we all have a little bit of tension in our heart today, including me, the pastor, about our kids going off to school. And being around so many new things, hearing new ideas, being around new people, new friends, new communities. Sometimes kids get a car. Sometimes they get a phone. Sometimes they go to college. And I just dropped my youngest daughter off at the University of Alabama. And uh, the neighborhood she's in, it's like frat houses and sorority houses. I feel like I was dropping my daughter off in Babylon, man. I really did. It It was tough, man. It really was. Sometimes your kids move to another city. All the control they seem to have, I'm sorry, that they seem to have as as children, it just vanishes. And sometimes kids get involved in things, they get swept up in things. And parents are like, my kids know better. I taught them better than this. They were in church every Sunday, every Wednesday. What happened? Well, you know, a lot of times our kids run with a crowd of friends that are just like them. And they're in a community that protects them from exposure to a lot of different sins and different ideas. And it's easy to assume that our kids have handled the problem, that they have the world by the tail. But then they get exposed to these new ideas, new people, new opportunities, new lifestyles. And they don't have the shelter of family and community that was there all through their childhood, maybe even into their teenage years. And so they know God says things like, Thou shalt not commit adultery or do not get drunk on wine, whatever it may be. But the crowd around them says, oh man, that's the best thing ever. You gotta be doing that. It's fun. This is what life is all about. And a strange phenomenon takes place. Exactly what Romans 7 describes for you and me right here. They know it's wrong, but they want it more than ever. And I wish I was different, but I'm not. I'm exactly the same way. Some things that I know are wrong, you want more than ever. But something arouses within them a strong desire to do the things that you protected them from and prohibited when they were kids. And the law actually awakens within them the desire for that thing that you prohibited and protected them from. And you might be sitting here as you're reading this passage today as a parent going, what hope do I have? The more I talk about it, the more I teach them, the more stringent I am, the more they're going to want it. You know, should I not say anything? What should I do? 
I admit, this is a huge, huge issue. If I teach my children right from wrong, it only fuels the fire? What do I do? Two things that have really helped me that I want to pass on to you as we leave today. Number one, rules without a relationship are only going to rouse sin in a child's heart. Rules without relationship are only going to rouse sin in a child's heart. I got to tell you, I was sitting in the back there with my mom today, and I was looking at all these kids up here. And man, I'm, I'm praying for your children because I understand this dynamic. But as you can see here in this passage, sin, the power of sin, is so much more seductive and powerful than many parents imagine. And you can talk, you can lecture, you can threaten, you can uh, ground, but at the end of the day, that's all powerless. Spouting off rules, boundaries, curfews, limits, that's easy. That is easy. But remember, sin originates in the heart. And so what you want to do is you want to shepherd your child's heart, their very soul. And shepherding your child's heart, much more challenging, much more time-consuming, and much, much more powerful. So many parents, you're telling their kids, no, don't do this, don't do that. Our family doesn't act that way. Our church wouldn't approve of that, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't work. Shepherd your child's heart. Teach your children what you believe is right and wrong in a spirit of genuine love and affection. This is what Paul did. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Dear friends in Corinth, we have spoken frankly to you. We're honest. We're truthful. We're giving it to you straight. And we have opened our hearts wide. You see the balance there? Man, we, we're telling it to you straight, but man, we love you. Love you so much. I, I got to say, boy, you know, you know, one of the hardest things as a mom or a dad, you know, I got guess some of my kids, you know, my, my kids' uh, peers, parents here today, when your kids say, I want to go to Amarillo, I want to drive to Amarillo. You're like 16, 17, 18 years old. Man, that is tough. That is tough. It really is. And uh, I can remember telling my kids, man, I love you more than my next breath. I would give my life for you. I really would. But I'm not letting you drive to Amarillo right now, you know? <laughs> and there's a, you, know, you open your heart wide and you speak frankly. He said, I speak now as though you were my children. Show us the same feelings that we have for you. Open your hearts wide. Number two, be honest. I got this from Jay Kessler years ago, a book I read, Top 10 Mistakes Parents Make with Teenagers. Be honest about your own struggles, shortcomings, and shortfalls. I love what he said in the book. He said, the worst thing you ever want your kids to believe is my mom or my dad, they have it all together. You know, they're perfect. You know, they never have any problems, any struggles. And so be honest about your own struggles, your own shortcomings, and your shortfalls. There's more power in humility than people understand. And there's something I love about Paul. I believe he had so much influence on so many people because he was so real. Again, 2 Corinthians, this is chapter 7. He said, after we arrived in Macedonia on this missionary journey we were on, we couldn't rest physically. We were surrounded by problems. There was external conflict and there were internal fears. You see what he says there? 
I was afraid. I'm a grown man. I'm a missionary. I'm the Apostle Paul. I was scared. I was scared. It's really, really good for your kids to know what your own shortcomings and struggles are. Truly is. Truly is. And so I want to conclude on this. This is the battlefield. This is the battlefield. What you and I have to know is who am I really in my deep heart? See, the reason you and I do what we do, we do what we do because of who we are. And that's very, very important for us to understand. We started talking about shepherding our children's heart. Our kids do what they do because of who they are. And so we want to shepherd their heart. And we do what we do because of who we are. And that is where we want to put our focus. And that's where we will be focusing the next couple of weeks. But today, I want you to see the scripture as we walk out. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, It is what comes out of you that makes you unclean. Far, for from the inside, from your heart, come the evil ideas which lead you to do immoral things. Whether it's robbing, killing, committing adultery, being greedy, all these evil things come from inside you. Come from inside you. All right? Can we just bow our heads together and pray this morning? While we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I know it's a little bit heavy as a way to end, but I really want us to think about this as we're leaving today. Thinking about ourselves, but also I know many parents here today thinking about our children. And so first of all, as you think about yourself, maybe there's an area where you're struggling and you've been, you, I mean, you, you're on point. I mean, you, you know what it is and, and you've written down plans and processes and things like that to try to rid this thing out of your life and it's never worked. Have you ever gone to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I struggle with that because of the man or woman that I am. And I want to do better. I want to, I want to be better. But Lord, I fail. Would you just be honest to God and say, Lord, would you just show me my own heart? You know, what is it about me as a man? What is it about me as a woman that this thing keeps creeping into my life and it never seems to go away? And ask the Lord to deal with your very heart. And I know there are many parents here today. You're thinking about your kids going to school this week and you're concerned thinking about those things. Would you just go before the Lord this morning in a spirit of genuine honesty and, and genuine love? Just say, Lord, would you just show me what it means for me to shepherd my child's heart? Not to give them rules, commands, and boundaries and curfews, but to truly shepherd their heart to see the work of your spirit in my child's heart. That's where you want to be. That's the domain where you want to go to battle. And so I want to be quiet here for a minute or two. I want you to pray about those two things this morning, your own heart and the heart of your children. Then I'll close this in prayer here in a few minutes. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you brought us here to this place to be around your word. And Lord, I pray that your word would find a resting place in our hearts today. Father, we would just know and understand more fully who we are in the world that we live in, in this epic cosmic battle that we are engaged in. And Lord, my heart is especially with the parents who are here today. 
as our kids go off to school. Lord, I just pray. I pray for wisdom. Lord, I pray for understanding. I pray for a new insight into the hearts and minds of their own children today, Father, that they would have that in a new and fresh way. And Father, for all of us here who struggle, Lord, can we just please ask of you, Lord, a new and fresh insight into our very hearts as well. We just want to serve you. We do want to be those that city on a hill in a dark generation. And so, Lord, show us what it means, Lord, to, to prevail in this war within. We ask this for your glory today, Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.